Well, brothers and sisters, it's good to share with you today and things I'm wrestling with, things I'm hoping to learn, and I hope you'll join me in that learning process. Last week, we talked about how God guides us. We talked about God guides us through the five CSs. So whether it's commanding scripture or the compelling spirit or common sense, or whether it's the communion of the saints and getting together with the body, or whether it's circumstantial signs, God uses all these avenues to help us discover his best, to know his will, and to live it out in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our jobs. This week, though, we want to take those five CSs and ask the question, God, how do you not just guide us individually, but how do you guide us as the body of Christ, the church? How do you guide us together? And, and we could, I could give the same five CSs and say those five CSs work not just for us individually, but also in community. But there is more that I want us to get into today, and that comes to us from one of the most important chapters about the early church, and that's chapter Acts 15. This is a critical point as the church throughout its existence had moments where they had to seek God's guidance and figure out how to make decisions that would impact the church for thousands of years. I pro they probably didn't even know it at the moment. This was one of those things that still reverberates and makes a difference in who we are as the church of Jesus today. And it comes to us from Acts 15 when some people were telling the new Greek and Roman Christians that they're not really saved. And so let's jump into the story and see what happens next. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute maybe even probably more of an argument and debate between with them. And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the nations had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad and when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and they must be required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question and after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and good news and believe. Now God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us Jewish people and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke 
that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. So the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the nations through them. And when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return, I will rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the nations who bear my name says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city, from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Come, Lord Jesus. Um, Lord, help me lift you up. I just to trust your Holy Spirit to guide uh, what I share today. May it not be from me. I pray that it's from you. And Lord, may it continue. May you, Lord Jesus, continue to guide us as your church in this generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here we jump into the story. Um, as traveling preachers begin to go around and talk about the way of Jesus, eventually some preachers came to Antioch who were Jewish and who, uh, when they came to Antioch, had basically said flat out, we want you to be biblical. And we've known the biblical way for a long, long time. And the biblical way is that you must be circumcised to be saved. If you're not circumcised, you're not saved. Now, uh, Paul and Barnabas took issue with this. And uh, they got together and they headed to Jerusalem and said, let's figure this out. And as a result, we enter into really the first what we might call denominational conference or regional conference of the Church of Jesus. Uh, it's sort of this conference that the Methodist General Conference that will occur next May is kind of based on the same principle that you get the whole church together and you ask Jesus to lead it and there they kind of make decisions that affect all of us. And whether it's them or whether it's Southern Baptists, you know, Southern Baptists get together with their convention every year, national convention, and do the same thing. It, it's based on the principle that comes to us from Acts chapter 15 where we see the early church wrestling with a tough decision about what to do next. And the church was making all kinds of decisions in these early chapters of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, we see them have to decide, okay, who's going to replace Judas since Judas is no longer with us? Later on, they have to decide who's, who can we elect, what leaders can step up to take care of the widows who are more from Greece and more Hellenistic than the 
regular Jewish widows. And, and so they were wrestling with all these decisions about uh, what is God doing among the nations and what does that look like? And so here we get to the particular question that must you be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved? And y'all, I want you to understand clearly these Pharisee who, Jews who are following Jesus, they see themselves as being biblical on this issue. But they're wrong. And so we have to kind of be a little careful there. Because they, could, they can quote scripture, right? They can go back and say, God told Abraham that his children must be circumcised to be a part of God's covenant family. They could go to the law of Moses and, and say, God spoke on the mountain the Ten Commandments and 625 other commandments of how to be God's people and, and to be part of the people of Israel. And this had shaped the Jewish and Israelite people's lives for a thousand years. And so they thought, well, it, it sounds like a good idea. It should keep shaping our lives as Jesus followers too. But yet the church isn't so sure that this is what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And so instead they go back and the first step that they do that's a positive step is that they bring the body together and together as the body of Christ, they seek out what God would have them to do. And that's the first good principle for discerning the future or allowing God to guide the church is, is we are interdependent upon each other. And so um, as we seek to know what God wants for Conyers first in the years ahead, it's important that we listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to each of us and interacting together and seeking the Lord Jesus together because it's when we come together as the body of Christ that the Holy Spirit gets an opportunity to work in our midst. And so that's the first step that they made, the, the first good thing they did. They began to discuss it and consider this question as it says in verse 6, but after much discussion, then Peter gets up and offers a little personal leadership. Peter gets up and reminds them of his experience with Cornelius, the very first uh, non-Jewish family to come to faith in Jesus. And he says, guys, you remember, God gave me this vision about going and fellowshipping with these Gentiles. And so I went, and I, as I went there, God did something amazing, something I did not even expect. I was there sharing the good news of Jesus, telling them how to be saved, and before I could even get done preaching, the Holy Spirit shows up and falls on these Gentile families. And I just couldn't believe it. They weren't circumcised. They didn't know probably hardly anything about the law of Moses, but yet God who knows the heart gave his spirit to them. And God who knows the heart, as he says in verse 8, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. 
for he purified their hearts by faith. Now what Peter says here, the second thing that the early church did in this situation is they looked for how God was at work in their midst. They looked for how God was at work in their midst. They looked for the activity of the Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit is at work, God is up to something. And so they were trying to make a God-centered decision in this instance. And so when the Holy Spirit showed up, Peter began to recognize that God's not making any difference between us Jewish folks and the Gentile folks. And y'all, that's a big deal, right? Because I can see at this moment that the Jewish people who were there that morning, their jaw probably dropped to the floor. What? I'm serious. Because they would begin to turn to Peter and say, but Peter, we have the patriarchs. We've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Peter, we have Moses. We have the burning bush and and the written tablets of the Ten Commandments. We've got the covenant. We're God's called holy people. We've got the promises that we're part of God's family. Surely we're better than them. They don't have any of this stuff. God said no. Because the Holy Spirit looked at these Gentile families' hearts and said, here's a people for my name. Here's a people for me. They're ready to trust me. They're ready for me to save them. They're ready to follow me. And that's all I need to know. And so I'm going to pour out for them the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, y'all, this is amazing. They weren't circumcised. They didn't know all the laws. They didn't know all about the God of the universe. You know, but it didn't matter. Sometimes we think in order to be saved, we have to think the right things or believe the right things or do the right things in order to get saved. But Peter reminds us No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. It is a gift of grace, so we're not supposed to be putting a burden on people's backs about salvation. And so this, you know, how does this matter today? Well, you might have all the tattoos in the world. And you might have your nose pierced and your navel pierced and who knows what else pierced. That doesn't matter if you're ready to say yes to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's ready to come. You may believe in evolution. You may not believe that Noah's flood was a worldwide flood. That really doesn't matter. All that matters is that your heart is ready to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All these things point us to the reality that God knows our hearts and others' hearts better than we do. 
And so we have to look for what the Holy Spirit's doing. And when the Holy Spirit does that work, we have to recognize it. And, and we can't really critique it a whole lot. Um, because as he says here, God has cleansed their hearts by faith. God is always already doing something in them that is new. Now, this also kind of impacts the whole sexuality issue in the modern church. There are folks that see themselves wired different sexually. And, you know, science still tries to figure that out, and I still try to figure that out. I haven't quite figured it out yet. But what I do know is if the Holy Spirit shows up in anybody's life as a brother in Christ, I have to recognize that God is doing something in their heart and life. And I have to recognize that they have become a brother and sister in faith. No matter who they are or where they come from or what their background is or what their orientation is or anything like that, they have a new identity in Jesus Christ. And that is an amazing thing that the church wrestled with that day. And so, the assembly quiets down after Peter is done. Paul and Barnabas stand up and tell of all these other things that God is doing among these uh, pagan Gentile people of the nation, these Romans and these Greeks. And everybody is just amazed. And then finally, James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church, stands up last. And he goes back to Scripture. He looks to commanding scripture, doesn't he? But he doesn't go back to, you know, you must be circumcised. He doesn't go back to, you must follow the law of Moses. Instead, he goes back to the prophet Amos. And in the prophet Amos, he says, when God rebuilds Jerusalem and when God rebuilds the people of Israel, he will do it for the very purpose that humanity may seek the Lord and that the nations might bear the Lord's name. And so James points out that God is up to something special among all the peoples of the world, so that it doesn't matter what color our skin, it doesn't matter what our native language is, it doesn't matter any of those things. Jesus wants to captivate us, give us his spirit, and transform our lives for his glory. And this is a principle that, that we keep having to relearn and relearn and relearn and relearn. For instance, 200 years ago, when early missionaries went to Africa, right, and they were bringing African people to Jesus, they began saying, you know what, you got to worship just like us. You got to say the Apostles' Creed in English, even though you don't really speak English most of the time. And you got to sing Amazing Grace just like us, though you have no idea what it means. And you have to sing Great is Thy Faithfulness and all these other great hymns of the faith because they mean so much to us English-speaking people. And the church of Jesus has to remember, no, God's Holy Spirit is working among His African people. And the Holy Spirit will guide them to to create their own music 
that resonates with their hearts and their lives and their culture. And he will guide them to, to, to how to worship in ways that resonate with who they are as the people of God in Africa. And, and the same thing will happen in China or in the Middle East or up in Ukraine or wherever. Wherever God's people meet, the Holy Spirit will be at work to make the worship of the living God something authentic to who they are because God not only transformed hearts and lives, God has the ability to transform culture for his glory. So it doesn't have to be done just like us or just like the church down the street. And so these are the kind of things that came out of this first Jerusalem council all when they began to unlock following Jesus from being Jewish. And so, some of the last things that, that, that he kind of shows us here, as James thinks about it, though, and, and modern scholars think that in actuality, uh, there probably are two issues here. One is the circumcision issue, and the other is a how do Jews and Gentiles sit down to a meal together in fellowship? Because that's not something they were used to. And so James ends with kind of taking this other similar issue, and Luke kind of puts it all together in one event, and whether it happened in one event or two events, we don't really know. But anyway, puts this last piece together, and James feels like in the midst of all this, though, um, we still want to give some basic advice some basic guidance to our brothers and sisters who are Greek and who are Roman and who are in other parts of the world. And so the basic advice he gives goes not really to the law of Moses, but actually goes back more to before Moses, back into Noah's time, and points out a couple of things. That the first bit of advice is stay away from idolatry. I think they looked at sort of the Roman Greek culture and said, here are some things that we're concerned about with the Roman Greek culture. First is, it's so easy to kind of have an idolatrous meal of meat that is given to Zeus or Aphrodite or Athena. Just try to avoid all that kind of stuff. And when you prepare your food, make sure you cook it well and drain the blood because you know, back in Noah's day, before there was an Israel or a Judaism, that's how God told us. And so that when Jews and Gentiles eat together, they can eat around a meal that, that there's mutual love and mutual respect and mutual grace for both cultures. And then they also add, and, and watch sexual immorality. I think uh, James seems to be critiquing the the sexual ethics in the ancient Roman world in some way or shape or form and wanted to remind the church how we live as a sexual human being. There are boundaries there that make a difference in our lives and make a difference in how we relate to others and make a difference in our community. And so be aware of all this stuff. If you can do these basics, then you're going to be okay. And I think in this teaching we find we find James kind of trying to mesh uh, what uh, John talks about, a mix of grace and truth to give the Gentile church just enough guidance to stay close to Jesus. And at the end of all this, in verse 28, they send this letter back to the church 
and they reflect on their time together. And in verse 28, it says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond these requirements that we just talked about. As they reflected on their time together, they felt like God had done something for the whole church that they could celebrate and believe in, that the Holy Spirit had done something. And in our day, we need that just as much today as the church back then. And so as I close today, just a couple more little things that, that I see here. What do we want to learn about how God guides the church? One, the church is guided best together, right? When it's not just the preacher, when it's not even just the leadership board, but when we try to listen to each other and learn from each other and see where the Holy Spirit is directing all of us. The second thing is, is we want to, as God guides us, we want to be as God-centered as possible. We want to look, where is the Holy Spirit at work? Where is the Holy Spirit active? How do, we, how do we get involved with what God is doing and not get in God's way, right? Those early Pharisaic Christians had gotten in God's way, and, uh, and we don't want to get in God's way as he seeks to reach people with the good news of Christ. And then the last couple of things is this, and Henry Blackaby talks about this a lot in his book, Experiencing God. We just redid it again. And Henry talks about when God, a couple of things. One, if the body doesn't interact healthily, healthily together, then oftentimes the church makes bad decisions. When we don't interact in a healthy way together, if we're not the body of Christ together, the church often makes bad decisions. The second thing he shares is when the church does make decisions that he would never frame it as, should we do A or should we do B? Because when we frame it as an A or a B, that leads to splitting. And he says that's not what the body of Christ does. Instead, he says the question we need to ask is this. God, how, how do we sense God guiding us as the body of Christ? What direction is that? And what direction is God calling us to move in together? And then he says, if we do vote on something significant, if there's a split, the next thing he says is, that means that we need to slow down. If 55% say one way and 45% say another, then Henry Blackaby's guidance is, wait. Wait for God's timing. Wait for God to move to clarify things and to, to, to make it obvious for everybody. And trust that the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus does want to guide his church. And so those are the things that I think today, they're most helpful to me. And I hope they'll be helpful to you as we seek together what God wants for us in 2023. And that's not just about the disaffiliation thing. That's just basic. Lord, what are we supposed to do for your glory in, in Rockdale County this year? And uh, may the Lord lead us and guide us as we seek to be the body of Jesus together today and into the future. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.